good then. So you, yeah, you kick <laughs> off. Lower expectations, both. I'd say that. What I'm, you say? I'm feeling a little bit under the weather. You know, just recovering from some stuff and hungover as normal. So it'll not be a high energy show for me. Yeah. So I'll I'll lower everybody's expectations like fuck. Yeah. Nobody else is what. Cool. No, are you cool? Yeah, she's always cool. Oh, I think we're on. I think. Um, I'm gonna put this here. This is high tech, Pete. I'd rather be too cool than too hot. Would you? Yeah. Will we kick off? Yeah. Okay. Do you wanna? Do you wanna start? Yeah. Well. I guess thanks for joining us. Um, where am I looking at it here? Yeah, Hi. Um, like Pete and I, Pete has moved recently back to Belfast, as many of you will know. So we were um, chatting uh, about Wake and what we were going to do with Wake. Um, we kind of already decided we weren't going to do a 2023 edition of Wake, which will be the first time we've chosen not to do it. Which was a silly thing because then I moved back to Belfast, yeah, which yeah, would have yeah. made it kind of easy to do. I mean, certainly you know, the budget doesn't have to take into account my you first know, class your flight. first class flight <laughs> in your hotel room in the Merchant, which yeah. definitely makes it more economically viable. But anyway, yeah. anyway um, but the, the um, I think we kind of wanted to keep the, the vibe or like keep the, the brand? going a little bit I don't like that word but we'll just go with it because it's Sunday and I'm really tired and hungover um, but like just to keep a little bit of presence um, and connections with the community um, over the next I guess it'll be just just short of 18 months before we'll be doing another one again and we were saying like well let's Pete was saying like well can we charge people for this content and I was like going I don't that's think that's terrible <laughs> I, mean, I mean maybe I said that but not in a cutthroat way I know I mean it was like are you sure and I was like yeah I'm pretty sure there must be a way for I us to charge I'm people sure I need to fleece it's these really people. hard to monetize that sort of content um, so we um, I mean actually what it was more was like we, we owe these people, but they're our friends. We need to give them. We need to have a servant heart and give them. That's what Adam was. Adam was very good. He was like, we need to four or five times do free things and have musicians. No musicians tonight. I'm up to do kind of stuff, and I thought it was really good. Said so that you know we keep the. The, like the, the dream alive like the drug dealer who gives away free drugs yes exactly that's, that's it thank yeah. you that's a good one exactly yeah. gateway drugs yes so <laughs> um, yeah and here we are and then like obviously Pete how has moving back to Belfast been for you oh it's been great I loved it uh, I have not I, I loved LA uh, but I haven't missed it at all except for the weather I mean it's freezing I mean it's killing me outside Actually, it's been pretty mild. <laughs> <laughs> it's been, yeah. No, but this year, because it's all this like twenty twenty two was the hottest on record or whatever. But this winter's been freezing. There was about yeah. two it was weeks. Nice. Yeah. There was about two weeks where it was cold, and the rest of it's been like. Oh, yeah. It's not me. But anyway. Yeah, well, I find it pretty cool. I mean, if you live in LA, of course. Yeah. I mean, if you live in LA, it'll be a bit of a shock. I would. it gets dark so early. Like we're talking four four thirty. Five o'clock. 4.30 in the midwinter, yeah, it'll be dark here. And then, but then the flip side of that is in the midsummer, it's like daylight right through to half 10, 11 o'clock at night, which I really love yeah. that part. I quite, we were saying before we came on, like, I quite like at Christmas that it's 
really dark, you know, and cosy quite early and it sort of feels wintry and you sort of lean into the winteriness of it, yeah. I guess, you know. Um, although if you've got, you know, seasonally depressed yeah. thingy, it's, it's not a great place to live. Well, I, I did Christmas this year, which I don't usually do, like Christmas tree and all of that, because it felt Christmassy, mm. winter, cold, darkness, all God, of that. He he, off camera, there's off an camera. actual, he hasn't taken his Christmas tree now I I, 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 He I loves it so much. I partly <laughs> kept it up for this, and then it made sense to, to put the camera this direction, so nobody it's, sees it. It's a landmark. We get to see it. It's you can't the actually whole see it. Literally, the whole of Belfast can see it. Yeah, yeah it's true, sitting yeah. in the corner of your apartment. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So this was your idea, um, and what was your thinking? Was obviously, keep the brand alive, give the drugs out, and well, it's give just, some content. Yeah, and I, and I suppose I was like, I just kind of think, yeah, I just kind of thought it would be nice. I kind of quite like. Um, talking about this stuff, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and I and I, you know, you might as well sort of uh, do it in an environment where you know there's people who are interested in the same things, and whether there's online chat, and you know, I, of course, it, when it comes to wake, I'm usually the like which bars are open guy, as opposed to what's wrong with my life, Adam. Yeah. Nobody ever says that to me. Thank God, because yeah. I don't know what to do. But um, yeah, it, it, I think it, it was for me a little bit about sort of trying to. Um, after 10 years finally you know engage a little bit with the work instead of sitting outside of my laptop yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm not gonna I, I, once the once the grown ups start talking yes. I'm gonna like not be very <laughs> vocal but like I'm I'm trapped here now yeah. and uh, yeah well we have we should say that we've got a few wakers people who have been part of wake uh, to greater or lesser degrees uh, Alfie you've been the least involved mm-hmm. with wake you did a six minutes at the last week but it was a good six minutes uh, about comedy and uh, we actually could talk about that a little bit um, but anyway so Alfie you were part of wake Helen you've obviously been part of wake a few times mm-hmm. Johnny you've been part of wake Jay has been a speaker at wake so we kind of pulled together a few of the a few of the usual suspects uh, and to have a bit of a conversation and Pete, tell me this. Oh yes. What what would you like <laughs> so to do? So pray Adam? tell. Uh, <laughs> How can I buy a ticket to the next week? No, no, no. <laughs> Don't worry about that. They're not on sale yet. Yeah. We'll let you know when they are. However, yeah. uh, it, it like what what um, it's all very well having this kind of like construct that's like oh we'll do this thing, but it needs substance, Pete. It needs some you know some academic cojones as it were <laughs> so what are you gonna what do you think we should be doing I love the way you're just like not wearing shoes by the way oh, it's no. like very <laughs> zen Buddhist yeah, um, anyway yeah. uh, what uh, what what oh master uh, <laughs> should we be learning uh, or should we be talking about today and maybe ongoing through the series that's where that's a nice setup thank you <laughs> um, so I was thinking about this um, the theme like we might we might end up doing an online wake of some kind, but it might just be like this. I don't know. And if we do, I was thinking of the theme. I mean, this, it doesn't sound that exciting when I say it, but we're going to make it exciting. Uh, is the unknown, right? Um, and of course, that's a theme that we've explored in various ways at various times. But um, as many of you know, we're about to do a massive deep dive uh, on Richard Boothby's work, uh, particularly his book, Embracing the Void. He was a speaker at the last week. Did you see him speak, actually? Were you in the room? Mm-hmm. You were? I did, saw, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. You I saw some of it. Yeah, so 
we're going to do. I'm going to interview him this Sunday and next Sunday, and we're doing an eight-week book study starting in a couple of weeks. So, one of the themes that he explores is the idea that religion at its best is has always been about a confrontation with the impossible or the unknown or some some dimension of reality that we can't know that we can't grasp and i thought maybe i'll talk a little bit about that and then we'll kind of open it up a little bit um we've got a few academics here like artists creative uh and, and me and, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Helen was asking, does, does Adam have a degree? And I was like, yes. Should I ask that? Should I ask that? Does Adam have a degree? No. <laughs> that's like, not how it came out. Well, you said in that. <laughs> which which institution give him no. a degree? Yes, did he school? You told me Adam actually has a degree. I was like, actually. You were the media studies degree. He's the best guy in Georgetown. No, I was at Coleraine. Coleraine, sorry, Coleraine. I thought you were going to say, no, it wasn't a polytechnic, but it was actually, you were. Actually, call it what you like, it's still a degree. Yeah, like as far as as far as any employers are out there. Was it a polytechnic when you were no, there? It no, wasn't. it wasn't. Okay. Don't University don't... of Ulster. Not University that it would matter yes. or make me a lesser person. No. no. Yes. No. <laughs> you can't be any lesser. Uh, so, <laughs> so he does have. <laughs> <laughs> um, in film studies, did we say that? In film media, 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 all of the yes, all the media, which you know was very influential in, uh, well, in what I did, like yes. you know, just, it's all very, it's all very connected. He did media, created a thing called the lab. Is one of the many things you did. Some yeah. of you know this, but it was very like kind of pre-icon type thing, multimedia. It was talks, there might have been movie clips, music, maybe some comedy, whatever, creative kind of almost late night talk show type vibe um, on serious and interesting topics. And then, you know, I was the co-host and then I went on to great things and Adam just kind of, (laughs) his career just basically crashed. Well, I I mean, I I, I decided to not spend my time thinking about stuff and yeah. did stuff you actually did stuff yeah that's true <laughs> yeah. that is very true so, um, so yeah, yeah I got derailed there um, the mm-hmm. unknown that's what I'm going to talk about it's the about. most northern Irish sounding word I don't know if it's just your pronunciation but no, how many yeah. vowels unknown 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what do I what do I want to say about the unknown um, <laughs> uh, but yeah like so some of the views on religion from say Freud or Sartre uh, Sar, we just we were reading the other night, so he's in my mind. But we see religion as a way of trying to avoid the anguish of being human, the sense of abandonment, uh, the sense of despair that's part of being a subject. And the the what he means by that is, in terms of anguish, uh, he means the sense that you can never. You have to take full responsibility for what you do. Like you can never advocate your responsibility. You can never say someone else made me do something or oh I had a palm reader and they told me what to do. You whether you know it or not, you have to take full responsibility for your existence. And religion can help you try to avoid that anguish. But cleverly, just as an aside, Sartre says, like even if you believe in God and even if you think God speaks to you and tells you what to do you still have to decide whether that was really the voice of God or whether it was a demon 
or whether it was a neurosis, right? So you, you always, even if you believe God has said something, you still have to decide whether that voice was God. So that's what he means by anguish. Abandonment is, he means by that, that we uh, have to create our own ethics. We're, there's no higher power that can tell us what is right or wrong. We have to embrace our own ethics. Um, despair, he simply means that there's no guarantee that what we give our lives to, uh, things will pan out. So he says if you're a communist, you can't believe that the communist utopia is definitely coming. So there's something despairing about that. You give yourself to the cause, but you can never think it's definitely going to happen. Or if you're a Christian who believes in the kingdom of God coming, you can believe it, but you can never have absolute certainty. Um, and so for Sartre, maybe religion is a way to kind of avoid those things. But uh, we anybody want to say anything about that before we kick off? Not yet. just yet. Not just yet, that's okay. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that's, and obviously there's a lot of truth to that. But the, I think a more psychoanalytic approach is an idea that, well, religion at its best has always been about tarrying with the negative, tarrying with something that you feel you cannot grasp, some sort of unknown dimension of reality. And in some ways, science is like that as well, because a scientist is interested in what they don't know. So they're tarrying with something they don't know. But religion kind of redoubles that and says, there's not just something that we don't currently know that we could know in 10 years or 20 years or 100 years. But there's also a dimension of reality that is inherently unknowable and we can't ignore it. We can't know it, but we can't ignore it. And in philosophy, that's often called otherness. So there's a dimension of something that is other that haunts us. Uh, and then I'll say a little bit more about that and then we'll kind of open it up. Um, one of the things about Richard Boothby's book in the second section of it, he says that religion both tries to help orient us to this unknown, says it's important for us to have a space for that in our lives, uh, but it also often attempts to cover it up. And it, it does so in three, three dominant ways. Uh, the first is uh, through superstition and kind of prayer that tries to control this otherness, uh, sacrifices, uh, kind of obsessional rituals that that you think can kind of like help you master the unknown. Um, and in Lacanian analysis, that would be that, well, the imaginary and the Greek, Greek religion would be a lot about that. Then there's the symptom of laws, um, which is the idea that uh, religions give you lots of almost like rituals for how to deal with your life and how to deal with the unknown, how to make sure you don't get on the wrong side of the unknown. Um, and he connects that a lot with Judaism, because you see a lot of the hundreds of laws that come out of this, this, this religion. And then the symptom of dogma, which he associates with Christianity, which is a, a series of beliefs, um, things that you, creeds that you kind of sign up to, again, as a way of trying to domesticate this dimension of otherness. So whether it's to say kind of superstitious kind of sacrifices and prayers and whatnot, laws or doctrine, um, those are the negative symptoms of religion. But if 
you can kind of like uh, uh, not get caught up in those symptoms. Uh, religion at its best is a way of, of remaining sensitive to what Freud calls dusting, which is the dimension of the unknown in other people, but also, if we make it wider than that, the dimension of the unknown that is part of reality itself. Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I definitely am interested to talk to you about psychoanalysis and religion and, and mm. in the context of like wake and stuff and in the context of what you just said about the unknown. I mean, I guess like when I first um, heard this concept of wake festival, I made, I told you before, I made the silly mistake of thinking wake was awakening, right? So it took you from one <laughs> kind of foolish position into another more enlightened one. Obviously, you corrected my, my misunderstanding, but still, I thought it was kind of interesting because. In a sense, I think what, what you're doing with psychoanalysis and religion is like saying that you know psychoanalysis can release you from a certain kind of structure, and that might not that might lead you to you deciding no longer to be religious, or it might lead to you changing your religious structure but remaining somewhere religious. So, in other words, like, and I'm I'm really interested in like um, Lacanian psychoanalysis and the ideas of Lacan. I'm, I'm actually I'm thinking about sacking it off and becoming a Freudian, but at the moment I'm still a Lacanian. Um, but, uh, and what the really key, some key like uh, framework from that, right, is the idea of this master's discourse. And then there's also these other discourses. There's like four or five in Lacanian thinking. One is the master's discourse and one is the analyst discourse. And it's a bit of a generalization, but the analyst discourse is, is better than the master's discourse yeah. because the master's discourse could maybe be thought of in your terms as like traditional religious thinking where the master knows best and they tell the subjects what's what uh, whereas the analyst discourse allow is when the subject is able to understand how they relate to things at the level of desire at the level of structure and what you just said about the unknown would be a good example right can we come to terms with dusting can we see ourselves how we're structured in, in religiousness and yes. in a sense then your work if i understand this rightly is moving people from the master's discourse to the analyst discourse or this happens if it goes well yes <laughs> yes yeah. so um but how do you like so what i wanted to ask you was how do you um ensure that some other bad things don't happen instead when you take someone out of the master's discourse. For example, one thing is, how do you avoid becoming another master? You said at the beginning, Adam, tell us master what to read. We're sat here in like the flat at the top of Belfast or whatever, we won't get into castration. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, let's not go there. But one thing would be, how do you stop uh, becoming another incantation yes. of the master's discourse uh, when, when you're doing these things. And then another thing which would be, uh, I probably isn't much time to talk about, but Lacan also has this idea of the capitalist discourse, which comes in the 60s after his, his main four discourses, this kind of last thing, where the point is it changes all the time. So it's, it's like the commodity becomes uh, the master. So one, yeah. then the other, then the other. So how do, how do you ensure, what do you, how does this work? Like, how do we get people to go out, out of the master's discourse into the analyst discourse instead of say, staying in the master's discourse or falling into the capitalist discourse? I'm, I'm going to very briefly explain the, yeah, the discourses yeah, just very quickly. We actually did, <laughs> if anybody who's on this, your patrons, you all have access to this, I did about six talks on those discourses last year, so we can go back and have a look at them. But in a nutshell, um, there's, there are four interconnected discourses. Um, and I'm just going to kind of like give very concrete examples of each of them. So there's the master's discourse is the first discourse, and the discourse is kind of a way in which one communicates, one relates. So the master is someone who tells you what to do, so it's a master's discourse. You can think of it like the infant, the first time they experience parents, parents tell you don't do something, 
right? They're just telling you no, right? Um, and often you have to interpret what that means, right? So you you hear these commands from your parents, you don't quite know what they mean, you start to try and interpret them. But there's basically the master's discourse is a discourse of demand. Um, then there is um, the university discourse. And the university discourse is a type of um, discourse in which there is a, an expert who tells you what to think and how to interpret and kind of what is right or what is wrong. Then, well, I'll give you two examples of churches. A church as a master's discourse would be kind of natural law theory. God says X, Y, and Z. You just have to obey. So a church that's kind of a master's discourse gives you these commands to follow that from the pulpit, but that are from God. University discourse church would be telling you, you know, who to vote for and how best to run your life and all of that. So maybe university discourse is more like progressive churches and master's discourses are more like conservative churches, maybe. Um, and then Lacan talks about what's called um, the analyst discourse, which uh, Alfie was mentioning, and the hysterics discourse. And very, very briefly, the analyst discourse is where the person is not telling you what to believe, is not giving you advice about what you should do or what you shouldn't do, but they are a type of mirror in which you encounter yourself and you encounter your own desires, you encounter your own doubts, your own unknowing, your own, that unknown dimension, the das thing in yourself, right? So that's the analyst discourse. Um, and then finally, the hysterics discourse is where you're confronted with a person who is divided. You're, you are, you're confronted by someone who um, is contradictory. So I'm gonna give you two examples, and this is where we get into power of theology. For me, power of theology has both an hysterics discourse and an analyst discourse. So the analyst discourse is, think about Jesus with parables, right? The gospels are a bit like an analyst discourse. The point of a parable is not to tell you what to believe, and it's not to, um, to make demands. Good parables confront you with yourself, confront you with your own desire, and you go shit, right? And then you know the truth of yourself and that truth sets you free, you become a better person, hopefully, right? Um, and then for me, uh, the, the most radical dimension of Christianity is that God is self-divided. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That the most radical dimension is Christ is a divided God. That's the analyst discourse. So a church that that is an analyst that is sorry, that's an hysterics discourse. Sorry. So for me, paratheology is an hysterics discourse. It is a liturgy in which the, from the pulpit you encounter a divided reality, a divided absolute. So that's me trying to describe the four discourses. Sorry for taking so much time. And then very briefly, is how do you keep that open? Yeah, yeah, and I guess I guess I was asking because I mean I think those are really good descriptions, and I think one thing that strikes me, and not everyone would necessarily agree with this, because I think most people instinctively think the worst is the master's discourse, and the yeah. master is the enemy. But I think some of these positions are worse than the master's discourse. So if you're releasing people from the master's discourse, what's to stop them going into something even worse? Even worse. <laughs> yes, yes. Here's something, John. Like one of the things, John, and you were brilliant at. He, um, he was part of Icon. Is, I remember you saying things like one thing very clearly in the pub was you said like how can we offend ourselves this month when we would we get together once a week in the bar to talk about what we're going to do and I think you were intuitively 
always trying to undermine ourselves. Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, I'd love to just undermine all of us now. Unfortunately, I'm doing dry January, so I don't have the, the power of the pub at the moment. Yes. No, I kind of think it was always like, um, um, it only makes sense if, you, if it's, you're disturbing yourself. It's like it's easy to disturb other people. That's that's kind of that's and it's good fun as well. Yeah. But if you're disturbing yourself, that's less fun, but Agreed more real. Yeah. yeah. So like, what Johnny was doing on a regular basis within the group was always was trying to kind of self undermine, almost almost create an institution in which in which self undermining yeah. was kind of part of it, part of its signature. Mm-hmm. And inviting limitation to what we did as well, something like minimizing the number of words we're allowed to use or the number of colors we could use or, you know, like that. Yes, that's kind of yeah. Yeah. And you also, like you did say, like and maybe I think you're half joking when you said, but you also got involved because you were worried that I would start a cult. I know <laughs> yeah. You said there was two reasons. Could you say the two reasons? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I came along to the, the first icon and thought I, I could get, I should get involved in this. One, because I thought I could make it better by like creating some ambient soundtrack to tie it all together instead of being so bitty. Mm-hmm. Um, and then secondly, uh, I felt like I had kind of some sort of, um, yeah, wisdom, wisdom responsibility <laughs> that this, this guy was <laughs> slightly too charismatic. Yeah. And I didn't understand what he was saying, but, <laughs> <laughs> but no, just keep him in check. Yeah. So yeah. kind of like a, right. a genuine, yes. I mean, I kind of, I laughed by the time and now I was like, I'm glad I did that because, yeah. like, who knows? Who knows how, what monster? Where are you feeling? I actually think I he could have been on the top floor of the Oval. Yeah. <laughs> no, I actually think society has a problem with um, undermining us, undermining ourselves. Absolutely you know, and does. particularly Absolutely this contemporary moment. Yeah. And if you look at humour, you know, you mentioned like comedy and stuff has totally changed from self-undermining humour to like I'm sure of myself and I'm yeah. morally, didactically laughing, joking about the bad other. You know, we've really lost the ability to undermine ourselves. So I think it's critical. But this that's what I like about the unknown. I've just been riffing. I haven't been listening at all. Okay. I've been thinking about the idea of unknowing, and, yeah. and and what you don't know is much more interesting than what you know. And I kind of go, mm. it's re- if if somebody asks you a question, you go, I don't know. It's it's a better question. Yeah. You know, but this of, is why you know the community aspect of things, like actually concretely doing wig in person. Obviously, I mean, I do. I've been thinking a lot about social media over the mm. last kind of six months because. You know, you have this kind of critique of social media of like, oh, you know, touch grass, too online, oh, you know, too much screen time or whatever. And, you know, you can argue, well, it's just a technology and it's not about the technology itself. It's about the way that the human subjects relates to the technology. And it's just like anything else. Like we thought that cars were demented in some way before we drove cars and accepted them. But there is something about social media as it relates to subjectivity that does undermine subjectivity precisely in its totalizing dimension or its it's impetus for us to see ourselves and other people as undivided subjects. So first of all, you know, as self-entrepreneurs, the, the capitalist aspect of social media that we're always presenting us, you know, we, we are presenting ourselves as sort of products and we're creating content for this big media corporation and content, you know, and capitalist content has to be sort of oppositional in a certain way and oppositional means that there has to be sort of an other that's whole and complete and therefore, you know, attempt at being whole and complete ourselves. But the way we relate to each other on screen is very different to how we relate to each other in person. And this does involve things like being taken down a peg or two, um, which is you know, really important in terms of the fact that human subjects only become subjects 
through recognition. And recognition only takes place through being divided, through the other being divided. And this is how psychoanalysis functions. It only functions because we go to see somebody. We might think that this Freudian analyst knows a thing or two, but actually we gradually come to realise that they are divided as well, and we come to see ourselves in their eyes. So the trouble is with social media, it's like not only are we presenting ourselves as whole and complete, but we give the impression to the other that we are as a commodity. But also, through the whole history of screen media, when we see something on a screen, we relate to this screen image in a way where the image seems whole and complete. And then, because of the capitalist dimension and the sort of product dimension, we're all sort of aware that we can't really criticise each other online because we're, we're sort of damaging someone else's product, we might be offending their career in some way. And so we can't really, this, this kind of leads to this spiral of the other seeming whole yeah, and complete, yeah. Yeah. ourselves coming to see ourselves as whole and complete, or having to come to see ourselves as whole and complete. And then we do feel lacking, which makes us feel even more alienated and insecure. So it's, this is why this community stuff is so important. And it is yeah, so and important the to do that. hysteric thing. I yeah. Think, yeah. Because I, I would say, it's interesting, people say social media is hysterical, but it's actually not hysterical enough no, in that sense. No, it's totally it's, isn't. It's yeah, totally isn't. Yeah. Totally capitalist yeah. discourse, yeah. And to jump, yeah, jump in on that, and just um, someone I've been reading recently is that uh, Bi Young Chul Ham, who's become a South Korean philosopher, is very interesting. But he argues exactly what you're saying, where that that in the present age we suffer from pos- too much positivity. There is no otherness. That what you see on, say, social media is the age of achievement, the self entrepreneur, where we become our own oppressors where we have to optimize our lives. We need to seize every moment. We, need, we can be everything we can be. And this message actually for B. Young Chul, he argues that this is why we see very modern symptoms such as fatigue, mm-hmm. burnout, ADHD, very, very modern symptoms which are actually connected to this pure positivity of an undivided other, the person, you know, whether it's the guru, you say, sorry, but I would say that this is where I would say the capitalist discourse is much more religious or dogmatic than the master's discourse. And part of what you were saying, because it, and the master, yeah, so, so the master's discourse sort of sets up, you know, a separate being. This is, you know, almost like, I mean, I don't know, actually that's a bad example, sorry, but but when you, when it's sort of like the, and, and it's always shifting, so it mystifies the, the, where the sort of God-shaped um, total positivity lies. And we're always sort of chasing our tails. And we always think that we're not part... You know, we can even have imagine that we're sort of embracing lack. But it can still be... Yes. yes. It can so still be positivised in the capitalist discourse. Well, and for me, like, the point of the four discourses, and even this is not quite correct, right? Because, uh, but you do go through them. And, you know, if someone finds my work they may start by treating me as a master. And the point of my work is that I have to be ambiguous enough that you can treat me on any of the four discourses. So the first discourse is, I have the right answer. I have the truth. Power of theology is some system that has the answer, right? That brings you in, that starts to get you to try to work out what I'm trying to say, interpret it. That you also might come come to this work as a university discourse, that there's something to learn. There's some something to, to unpack, and that's kind of true. There's nothing wrong with that, and that's true, and that also brings you in. Just like someone might go to analysis, they don't go to an analyst because they're hysteric. You would never go to an analyst if you go, but they're just broken like me, right? You almost have to think of them as a master, as someone who has the answer. You can tell me what to do, give me the answer, or give me advice, tell me, you know, what should I do to be better in my job or in relationships? Uh, but 
you, you go to the analyst as a master or as, as a professor, but then you discover, well, then they're, but they're an analyst. What you actually discover is yourself. Eventually, you kind of start to discover your own uh, unconscious. And, and finally, I think maybe the cure is whenever you see that we're all divided, including the analyst, right? There is, and we are all riven with unknowing. We are all questions unto ourselves. And once you experience this, this hysteria at that level, you, you, we're all hysterics, we just don't know it, but once you can embrace the hysteria and see it also in the analyst, that's part of the cure. Maybe that's simplifying too much, but... No, that's yeah. interesting, yeah. yeah. Do you have some questions though, as well? Yeah, I'm not even sure if I understand them, but I'm going to read them <laughs> out anyway. Um, so Chris Iyer, hi okay. Chris, hi, Chris. Um, says, if we're emphasizing that there's no certainty in any result, uh, aren't we talking Caputo's perhaps alongside whatever the psychoanalytic stuff comes out with? Yes, I get what he's saying. Good. Um, <laughs> yes. um, th this is a difference between deconstruction and deconstructive theology, which I've been very influenced by, um, and this stronger psychoanalytic thing. So here's here's. And, and Chris already knows this. I like the question. It's a good leading question. Um, but you know, there's there's almost there's the unknowing of being unsure. There, there's the unknowing, and there's the, there's lots of different types of unknowing. So that's, there's the unknowing of I don't know the answer, right? I I, I watch loads of YouTube videos. I do do that a lot. That was good, yeah, because yeah. I watch YouTube videos and things I don't know about. So there's a type of oh, things I don't know. <clears throat> there's the unknowing of you know there's something the mystical unknowing of there's. There's a reality out there that's so great that I cannot grasp it um, because of my inherent limitations. But then the most radical move is that there's not simply something out there that is so vast I cannot know, but actually unknowing is woven into everything. Like It's not that God is so great that we cannot know God. Kind of the radical move is God doesn't know God. Like the radical move is that unknowing is not a limit, an epistemological limit, as well in philosophy it would be called, it's an ontological thing, as in it's part of reality itself. Um, and that's the difference between, I think, Caputo and what we're talking about. Does anybody want to jump in on that idea? Of the, no, um, I was meant to read the Caputo stuff, but never <laughs> did. Um, but I did, I did want to, I mean, I, it occurred to me, to, I know you, you didn't done a lot with Zizek, it occurred to me to ask you to talk about this, since the theme was unknowing. And you know that quite famous thing where Zizek talks about like known unknowns, unknown knowns. So, so he's like, yeah. there's unknown, un, there's known unknowns, right? That's like things we know we don't know. Like there's a limit to the universe, that's outside our knowledge. Then there's unknown unknowns, things we can't even imagine yet because they're not even within our culture. Then there's... Like an iPhone, imagine an iPhone during the Middle Ages. That's right. an unknown yeah. unknown that you wouldn't have been able to do. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. That's, 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 that's good. Um, and, but then there's this kind of really interesting category of uh, unknown knowns, right? Which is basically things you think you know, but are in fact unknown or something like that. Well, there's... there's, there's, there's yeah, well, that's also related to the way that we re repress in terms of the unconscious. So, like exactly. unknown knowns. Unknown knowns are things yeah. you think are fixed, but unconsciously, yeah, they're, they're yeah. Fixed. Or a strength you didn't know you had. 
Exactly, might be. Well, exactly. Might be which is weak, not just weaknesses. Yeah. Yeah. Which is an example yeah. of why you need to be in community with other people and to see yourself through the eyes of the other people yes. because other people know you often a lot better than mm. you know yourself. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Exactly. And also, um, the the radical thing of the as well as she's ex examples is with WikiLeaks is in WikiLeaks we actually there was very little that was said in WikiLeaks that we didn't know but we didn't want to know that we knew like we kind of knew that American soldiers were killing civilians yeah, yeah, right yeah, that was something story. we all knew but we didn't want to know that we knew or the animal cruelty like we all know that terrible things are going on and the reason why I'll avoid the leaflets uh, is because not because they're going to tell me something I don't know they're going to tell me something I know but I don't want to know that I know mm -hmm. um, so is this like What's in sausages? Yes, that's, <laughs> that's a very nice perfect. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's it. We all know, we just don't want to know that we know. And as long as we do, and it also like not looking at your bank statement, right? Or not looking at a letter from the doctor. You kind of maybe know what it's going to say, but as long as you don't open it, you don't know what you know. Yeah. And that's kind of the unconscious, that, that there's an unconscious dimension to that. But do we need, my question would be, do we need that? Like, is that, is that good? Because don't we need, in order to function as a successful person, you need this ability to disavow, right? This ability to decide not to know because too much unknown and your subjectivity is fucked. You know? yes. This is yeah. true. The thing is, though, this is where, like, like, structurally, there's always, there's always something else. Like, there's the unconscious that cuts across everything. So it's like, what what religion can give us, and this is where mm, yeah, the, exactly. the master's discourse is better than the Catholic discourse, my opinion. Thinking, so yeah. you think about like traditional religions, like not that I'm a theologian in any way, but you think you always give the example of like Judaism, right? That you have all these rituals, you know, you do them once a week, and it's, you know, it's more freeing. You, you perform these sort of maybe seemingly bizarre rituals, you have a dinner together, you do, I don't know what you do, but then you can get on with the rest of your week. Whereas in the capitalist discourse, there's a master there we don't know where it is and is it an unknown unknown or is it a known unknown i guess it's a known unknown but the but have but there's always going to be in our reality and you obviously you talk often about like positive positivizing a negativity and i would agree with you on this it's like there there is a lack and if we are conscious of the lack we can maybe and this is where higher theology and very and psychoanalysis has the capacity to be political yeah. is that it can it can positivize that which is repressed within the political system. So we can actually be aware, because there's forms of disavowal that are useful, there's forms of repression, and you know, Freud often you know, even talks about religion being a crutch. It's, you know, sometimes life is so shit, we need an escape, we sometimes need to watch a Hollywood movie just to get going, you know, we all have to live our lives. But on this sort of grander scale, mm -hmm. there's, 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 a, there's a lack that insists, and there's, we have a, a political system that can completely denies lack. Yes, and to give an example, which is a, a great Shizek example of something you were mentioning there, is where he says, like, if you have a kid and uh, you know the, you have to, the kid has to go to see grandma. Uh, traditional parents, if the kid says, "I don't want to see grandma," the traditional parent will say, "Get your coat on, get in the car, you're going to see grandma." Right, um, but the modern parent will sit the kid down and say, oh, you know, you really want to see grandma, you want to do the right thing, you know, you want to, you, you, you know, you're a good, you're a good person. And she's like, well, that's even worse. One, because it's usually fake, i.e. if the kid says, I'll stay at home, they go back to the traditional get in the car, right? <laughs> but two is, not only does the kid have to do it, but they have to like it. Like, there's no space for, uh, for rebellion. And so for the can, what happens within Judaism is, it's not just that there's lots of rules, 
you can also disobey the rules. So there's all this stuff about how to transgress, how to kind of obey the rules, but the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. And actually that's more fun. So, you know, Shizek used the example of you shall have no other gods before me, which is a way of saying, well, you can have gods behind my back, but don't do it in front of me, which is the parent saying, don't get, don't get drunk, but they secretly kind of want you to, but in that kind of in a controlled right way, but they have to be the parents. So they have to go, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. But secretly, they want you know the kid to go out, have a few drinks with their friends, get a bit drunk, be a bit raucous, and they'd be disappointed if they didn't. So whenever Lacan says, if God is dead, nothing is permissible, it's not that Lacan is a conservative saying that we need rules to obey. Lacan says we almost need rules so that to we can disobey them. them. Yeah, exactly. But within capitalism, yeah, and, this, thought, yeah. Yeah, and be young child, this is where you can connect it. Because he says, in a society where in social media, it's all about, there's no rules. You can be whoever you want to be. You can self-optimize. You can life hack. You, you can achieve. You can be your own self-entrepreneur. There is no space of rebellion. There's, it's like working for Facebook. You not only do you have to work for Facebook, you have to like it. Mm. In the traditional jobs, you had to work, but you didn't have to like it. Now you have to fucking wear their T-shirt. You know? No, but the thing is, it's like, so human subjectivity is a symptom of what we're talking about. Mm. There's no, like fully formed human there's no essential human where you're born and you're you we're only who we are we only speak we only can have self-consciousness we can only be in community with other people because we're born from less than nothing so there's been a big mistake in this you, you know 1968 with this idea of you can enjoy without borders and yeah. unfortunately this was you know attempted a left-wing revolution but it actually led to neoliberalism basically and the morass that we're in because we aren't we are less than nothing and that's why we are something and that's why we experience self-consciousness and wonder and have this almost spiritual, um, although it can perhaps be scientifically explained, relationship with the universe. The limitation we need in order to be able to relate to this world because this idea that like this sort of almost scientistic, and I'm saying like I obviously, um, I believe, I think science is more of the hysterics discourse and I think uh, obviously science is like completely true, whatever, but you have this sort of master's discourse or religious relationship with science often. Um, but this kind of like, we know where we're going, uh, there is an, ab you know, there's an absolute in reality itself, or that, you know, I am myself in essence, not by having gone through a second birth outside the womb that I marked completely by lack and all this kind of stuff. And because of this, we need things to get going. And scientism, this is like, to be controversial for a second, but the science became a master's discourse when, when during COVID, mm. it was like, the science says, the science is, whatever side that takes, that science is a master's discourse. But as Lacan says, science at its best is an hysterics discourse. Yeah, when science gets tied to capitalism as yeah. well, it becomes the master's, master's discourse. discourse. And it actually... or, or a university discourse. University yeah. discourse or master's discourse, yeah. When so university I mean, discourse disguises the capitalist discourse. Yes. But... I mean, there's loads I could, I could say, but I mean, the science thing, just quickly, it's Marx who insists that we need to think scientifically, not in the humanities way. And that's like, but anyway, I think that's a whole other thing. But I wanted to say something about the 68 thing. I think that is worth kind of saying that like and, and and also about the masters and capitalist discourse like 68 is still thought of as this kind of by many people this kind of revolution moment precisely because it was like desire without boundaries you know but um and this actually is the capitalist discourse the masters discourse i would i would say i don't know, sort of borrow what you said helen but like the masters discourse does allow you to acknowledge you're a lacking subject and it gives you a fantasy 
with which to live as a lacking subject. Yeah. What the capitalist discourse does is it commodifies that lack and it, it allows you to constantly feel in a cycle where you're going to be fulfilled and then you're not and then you're going to be fulfilled and then you're not and so on. So it doesn't... So, so this, and this is really what... Um, yeah, what the logic of 68 was. You can have what you want, yes. but obviously yeah. you can't. And at least the master's discourse well, acknowledges you, you are only wanting because you lack in the first place. So, there's no, yeah. so there's psychoanalysis no. really was the anti-68 discourse. Yeah. So that time... And Lacan did obviously criticise this with yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, Just to explain the, 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 the capitalist discourse very quickly, because yeah. I think it's really interesting what you're saying. So from what I remember, correct me if I'm wrong, but the capitalist discourse, and you can look these up, <laughs> and you'll see all these really weird symbols, the Kabbalist discourse is, is a, a split subject, talks to you, but beneath them is the master, which means that, you know, your, your boss, you call them by their first name. They're just like you, they're a friend, right? So on the surface, we're all equal under capitalism and we all go into the marketplace as equals, we buy and sell, but actually in reality, yourself, the people who are selling their labor are not at the same level as the people Right. So on the surface, we're all equal under capitalism. We're all we're all divided subjects, but hidden in that, hey, we're all equal. We're all the same. Some people have all the power. That's basically is not in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah. And let's say that you know the master is the most powerful figure in the master's discourse. The you know, the analyst is the most powerful figure in the analyst discourse. In the capitalist discourse, the subject is the most powerful figure. So you're well, saying the illusion, the illusion is capitalist it. discourse. It could become that. Well, or I think, could, um, yeah. yeah. I mean that as in thinking is centred around subjectivity. That's why you get, like, identity politics, right? Like, I am X, Y, Z. Yeah, but, but the irony is it's the... the driving force that defines what society functions. Yeah. The irony is, of course, is like... It's worse for the subject. For, for, yeah. yeah, exactly. It's so agency. For you the get problem, the agency, but you're more fucked than you were before you had it. power as a subject, you get absolutely less than fucking you know the, the the system does very well at mystifying where the where the power resides and we only discover it when it's too late very cleverly it use, it weaponizes past um emancipatory movements to disguise power dynamics today and so if you criticize them you know one is in danger of all kinds of things but yeah it might seem like kind of abstract to talk about like these things like master's discourse capitalist discourse or, but it, it, to me it seems fault. like you no it's my fault yeah <laughs> but, but to me it seems like this is what's I mean from seeing your work this is what's exciting about what you're doing in pyrotheology you know and, and I guess I'm sort of working out you know, the enemies, there's two kinds of enemy. There's a master's discourse, there's a capitalist discourse. And like, it's interesting that you said you identify with analysts and hysterics discourse, but it, actually this is what pyrotheology can do well. It can combat masters and capitalists. And, and that's great. I think that's yeah, really exciting. exactly, because it's not like... You know, I always use the example of... I think part of the reason why this Harry and Meghan stuff captures the imagination so much... She's very upset. No, it's a war... Someone who really likes Harry and Meghan. Wow, I didn't yeah. know. Yeah. No, but it's, it's the war between the master's discourse and the capitalist discourse, right? Like, so the master's discourse, the monarchy, which has its problems, the... What what the these people who aren't duped by you know sort of the non duped uh, is a is a is one of Lacan's famous statements. But the lie of, the lie of monarchy allows for certain functionings, and when British society or societies you know obviously there's fewer monarchies around it operated in a certain way. There was a necessary sort of lubrication of society through this, and this allows social cohesion through a kind of scapegoating of the royal family because you hate them and a social cohesion because of pomp and circumstance, because, you know, of ideology, you think, oh, they aren't in such a country, all this kind of stuff. So that's one thing. It's like, but the, the master's discourse, so the 
Masters discourses, sort of the old order, but this new order, which it's Harry and Meghan represent, is the Catholic yeah. discourses, which is and new they, wealth. They think they're the university And they think that they, yeah, no, they think that they're the, the university discourses. It's all about, like, <laughs> we have the right thoughts, to, yeah. we represent. But, you know, the, this is a couple of people who've accrued you know, not nearly the same amount of wealth as Queen Elizabeth in just a few years, yes. a few well, contracts. Yes. Well, two, and what, how, how long did it take? I mean, like, I mean, the, millennia, the British royal family has been around for millennia, but I don't know if the yeah. Queen's wealth is, you know, it's part of that. But, um, but you know, in just a few years, and it's all to do with, you know, self-actualization and the right side of history and having the right ideas. But really, it's the same thing. It's not worse because it mystifies the power dynamics. There, we have a master. So, but, yeah. exactly. you know, so just, why you might say it's Cavs discourse is because it's all about how broken and you know difficult and all of that. But behind it is this incredible wealth and incredible power. No, and, and, yeah, and it's a sign obviously of the fading of the master's discourse in our yes, order of things that the capitalist discourse is able to do this and it's able to have this impact. But of course the illusion is like but, you know, it's not really working anymore, but I think early on it was sort of, you know, these are the right people to get behind because they're more ethical or what have you, but actually the same dynamics are just yeah. at play. Now here, yeah. you've gone very deep, very fast, very quick. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have a question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when can I go home? Yeah. Yeah. Right now, <laughs> who's, who's Harry and Meghan? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean? I was following it up to that. Is that right up to that one? You've got the massive discourse sort of, the catalyst discourse. Well, yeah. Some of the, the yeah, anything, anything else? Well, <clears throat> yeah, hold on. Uh, there's there? so many questions, but you guys haven't really given me a chance to get in. Uh, Sorry, it's yeah, fine, it's good. It's exciting. Um, I'm kind of trying to work out the questions that they've already answered in the chat to each other. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah. And one thought I have is if you're doing a, a wake program but unknowing, you won't need to publish the program. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, save good. a few. It'd be a shame to tell you what was going to happen. That's very good, and that saves us having to see it. But doesn't that make it more master's discourse where only Pete knows? Yeah, what's yeah. happening? I was just talking about this coach I had at one time who did something <laughs> like that, and it was very much a like, power play. Oh, yeah. Unknown <laughs> becomes the product you're buying then. Yeah. Hi, Jay, by the way. On the chair, there. Yeah. Carl Gardner <laughs> asks Adam, "Have you tried taking a shot every time you try to read a comment but can't fit it in?" Oh. <laughs> I'd be dead. Oh, yeah. Um, we tried. We kept trying to get in, no, and we no. wouldn't let you. No. Uh, Sawyer says, uh, "Question for artists: How that'll Johnny? That'll be Johnny. Johnny. <laughs> uh, how does art sort of play into this? When is art a disavowal of structure?" And when is it a collective force to combat atomization or homogenization? I mean, question. I, I, I have an answer to that. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> my answer to that is I don't know what the question is, but I do my best. I, I have an answer to that. But yeah. I know the answer. There you go. <laughs> so I think, I think art, the reason why art works else is that anything? art is yes. like an embrace, it's a material embrace of contradiction. So it's not, it's not dogmatic, it's not coming down on one side or the other. You know, it might address themes, but what makes art art is that it's about. It, it's touching on something ethereal about the world, world we live in, which is contradiction as such, which is like the rupture at the heart of everything, that which can't be named, that which cuts across reality. And I think this is where art is precisely political. You know, often we talk about like, oh, this is so political. Oh, so I actually think art that we, in that kind of cliched way, think of as political, as a bit annoying, it's ha hammering people over the head, isn't art because it's not yeah. political. 
because it's actually apolitical, because it's come down on the side of one thing or another. It's oppositionalized, saying, this is the right way to think, this is the wrong way to think. This is the good group, this is the wrong group. Whereas art itself, and why we can identify, and this is why, you know, I don't think questions of representation really get to the heart of this, or aren't actually political, and mystify what's political in art, is that political art is always political. Art is art because it embraces contradiction. That's what makes it political, and that what, that's what makes it universal, and that's why we can identify with um, different forms of art, people representing different roles in art, whether it's you know acting as a role that's not your identity, or is your identity, or whatever. But art touches on something that is universal, which is lack, which is what makes every speaking subject a speaking subject, no matter who they are, what they are, what they desire. Mm. So art is art, and art is difficult to talk about, as art is precisely touching on the unnameable dimension of reality, and the unnameable dimension of reality is what makes a self-conscious being. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. I think that's good. I mean, it means that art is that, like, you can't have an art which is pro-identity politics because that is art, but whereas so much of the stuff we see on screen and in media is turning contradiction into opposition no, by, I think that's precisely, by pushing we, identity politics, but this is precisely you not know, And it's art. why it's difficult to do art under capitalism, because yeah, well, art, art is, is yeah. antithetical yeah. to the logic of capitalism. Well, it, well okay. <laughs> you see, I think what you're talking about is the difference between good art and bad art. As well, exactly. say, you can't say that's not yeah. art, right? And also, I think, Hotel I mean, the one thing yeah. that I kind of feel... I want to stand up for Billy Bragg or people like him, you know, who, who do, like, like protest is a really important part. Yeah, absolutely. It can come from, from billionaires. It's, it's not, it can be anti-capitalist, but still produced by the but, capitalist. But, but the thing is, though, I think the likes of, like, Billy Bragg or someone like Ken Loach is precisely yeah. artistic, precisely because it's embracing contradiction, yeah. because I think the best, what is political is that. And often... In, in under the master's discourse. What's difficult today is it's difficult to protest the capitalist discourse because it's so, it, we're so uncertain of what the master is, what we're fighting against. Yeah. Because it's, you know, we were talking about this the other day, mm. a drunken conversation about the locksmith. Yes. It's so oh, hard yeah. to articulate because the logic, yeah. how capitalism operates is so mystified to us that we constantly forget it. Tell the stories about the locksmith and the dentist. That's a great critique. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, the, the, the first one is about like if I'm parking my car and I need 50p to like oh, yeah. park my car, um, it's not as good as the locksmith one. But I'll tell Rachel really quickly. So if you said, if you said to somebody, can I have change? Can you give me change of this pound coin? Um, and they say, yes, well, I have 50p, I'll swap it um, for your pound. Um, they would go, no, fuck off, basically. But then if they say, well, no, hold on, wait here, I have a pound, I'll run down to the opposite end of the road and get you change in the shop. And then when they got here and they, you said, well, could you give me 50p for my trouble? You'd go, I okay then, even though they made you stand and wait <laughs> in the rain because you're attributing value to the effort that they've made. Sacrifice. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the locksmith one's like, you know, the guy who comes and lets the person into his house and he does it in like 10 seconds and then he charges him 100 pounds and he says jesus christ you're well paid that's pretty good i must get into being a locksmith right and he goes let me tell you whenever i started this job i would have done what i did now in an hour and i sometimes would have broken the lock and had to charge people extra for the lock and sometimes people would have been waiting in the rain and they're shopping and everything with their kids like waiting to get into the house and then i would have charged him 100 pounds and nobody would ever complain even though I was shit at my job and like actually making their lives harder, 
uh, like they would nobody would complain but as soon as I got good at it and like let people in quickly and did my job effectively people are always saying Christ mate that's really oh, expensive yeah. Yeah. yeah but this is so that the, the lie of capitalism so yeah. it's utilitarian that the best people get paid the most it's very productive but the actual logic of capitalism is as you described and it's so de- to, I mean, it's pure death row. So it's so hard to, and obviously as well. Then there's another ideological dimension of capitalism that any critique of capitalism is like communist and pro Russia or whatever. You know. So there's all these different ways that we we cast our gaze away from the actual logic of capitalism, which is difficult to protest. But actually, so a lot of um, can I say well, very quickly yeah. that is that you know often the discourse is some people say well capitalism works or at least works better than every other system and that's why we should have it. And there's people who say. Well, no, it doesn't work. Ah, you know, creates depressions, recessions, so, you know, we should usurp it. But the psychoanalytic critique is that it works precisely because it doesn't work. Yeah, that yeah. it's actually, it's very mm-hmm. failure to work. It's just like, again, like relationships. Like, oh, the, the relationships works or a relationship doesn't work, but sometimes relationships work precisely because they don't. <laughs> it's, the, it's the failures that, that generate, but, for good or for bad, the working. Anyway, yeah, so the, the yeah. whole point, though, is that capitalism is so tied to subjectivity and the issues of subjectivity that we can't understand capitalism without understanding subjectivity which is what a practice like pyrotheology does um but i was just to go back to art it's almost easier to protest the master's discourse so you know a lot of really great art from the 20th century when we were still Mm. more within this like a master's discourse of the kind of old Mm. you know you know early capitalism and even social democracy in the 20th century and you get these films that are like protest films and you know Ken Loach and these like great artists but then almost today what we have is like often a kind of uh, copy that follows the logic of protest but it's actually not doing protest yes, yes. it's actually mystifying but I do agree that some of the best art is actually protest and, and absolutely yeah. is yeah and if you're saying this, this makes a lot of sense to me in that one of the difficulties with protest today is if you're protesting, in the capitalist discourse, if you look at it online, there's a bar S, is on the top left-hand side, and a bit lower, I think it's the master, but the idea is that you, if the people who are in power are presenting themselves as divided, as broken, as just like you, then attacking them becomes impossible. And like Meghan and Harry is a kind of example, people are turning against them, mm-hmm. but it, 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 it's very hard to protest against what appears to be a divided subject, but underneath they actually have the well, power As soon as you get mind. to understanding the logic of what's going on, it's much yeah, easier yeah, yeah. to protest, yeah. But, I mean, one of the things that, just bringing in the art and Jay here, is one of the things you are very interested in is punk, yeah. and Belfast punk, as a type of artistic movement that is a protest movement, is uh, embraces kind of difference and contradiction. I don't know if you Yeah, no, I mean, I was just thinking about just Stiff Little Fingers, first album and uh, inflammable materials and then how they like those guys you might not I don't know if I've never sat down and talked to any of them but I bet you like if you had like a political talk with them they would just be like whatever but their art says it all Mm -hmm. like to the point where it's like it's so effective to what they were saying about the troubles but it's so effective to what's happening today you know someone like Bob Dylan he'll be like oh I don't write protest songs and he obviously wrote some protest <laughs> songs. He just even denied the art, but something of the unconscious connected to his art, and he just let it be. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, I think music as art is really 
really beautiful. I think painting and art is really, really beautiful, and it does it touches my soul. And I mean, I think you see that even through like bands in Belfast who are like, oh no, we don't want to do that. Like it's on Teenage Kicks, you know, you still get something's there of the the hope for the future. So it's just I feel like there's just a lot of yeah. things that are unconsciously said through art that are more beautiful. Like I honestly sometimes can't stand to hear an artist, a musician, especially talk about politics. Yeah. But then you listen to a song and it's just it yeah. stays with you forever. Yeah. You do, know? You, do you know um, what the original lyrics for Teenage Kicks was? No. <laughs> Sorry. So but it, I would love to. Well, <laughs> it's not. I mean, it just changed that a little. But it did. It obviously the lyric is I want to hold her, want to hold her tight but the original lyric is I want to hold it, I want to hold it tight because it's about wanking <laughs> no way yeah. Yeah. well that yeah. is teenage kicks so I mean that's the ultimate protest like yeah. in a world whenever you're like you know basically people are killing each other over religion you know I mean, if you t and what you're saying is exactly correct if you talk to any of the old punks they'll all say you know and you'll interrogate them in a way and say well you know, talk to me about politically what you know you were trying to do, and they'll always say, "Well, we 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 weren't interested in politics." And I'm like, "That's fucking political." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's in this place. That's the most political thing you can do is say, "I hate all that shit." You know. Yeah. Um, I mean, so. like, I mean, there's one song, and I have the name the name of the song, but where he just where they're in, in a stiff little finger in that first album, they're just saying like, "I don't want any like I could do this side," you know, I could be. You know this side or this side, and he, they just tear both of them down. I'm like, I don't want any of it. I just don't want any of it. And mm -hmm. it's like that. Like, I'm not gonna allow binary thinking. I'm not gonna allow mm -hmm. violence. I'm not gonna allow sides. I'm not gonna allow armies. I'm not gonna allow chain link fences to tell me that I have to make a decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna let my mom and dad or my look my band members. Mm -hmm. This is what we're saying. And yeah. it was. And that, so at the time, right? like you have to place that in the context. Like, yeah. Like nobody had done that here. Like no, all the kind of, you know, all the other kind of, you know, creative forces that are, you know, the artists in the in across the world, yeah, but that had spoken up. Even even you know, Bloody Sunday's not like it's still trying to say, you know, it's the but you know, like they basically just went fuck it, like fuck all of you. This is right. Well, I mean, and know, like and that's that, what I love because people say, oh, the Sex Pistols were so dangerous. So I'm like. <laughs> no, stiff little. I mean, those guys are lucky because they had both sides. They were being pissed off, you know, uh, like, and nobody took them out. You know, yeah. what you talk about putting in the context. I mean, this I don't know anything about, but it seems almost depressing as well because if you think about how binary thinking dominates today, you know, that's if you think even now it's we're talking about is Harry and Meghan versus the monarchy, or it's what's the other thing at, at the moment, Andrew Tate versus Greta Thunberg. You're almost positioned all the time that like you've got to pick between these yeah. things, and the whole point you're making is that there's actually a long history of trying to oppose that, but it, it's depressing that it hasn't got much further than. But this, this is where I start to understand. <laughs> <laughs> this is where I go like. Because Nor Pete being from Northern Ireland and working and the do doing the things he does makes more sense. Like I always say to people, like we were doing identity politics before the rest of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. That's why it's interesting. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah, we're, yeah, we're absolutely. thirty or forty years, exactly. fifty years, exactly. For, like further down the road than the rest of the world. And social media probably created that, but yeah. we were doing it before anyone yeah. else. It yeah. doesn't mean being him; it means Northern Ireland. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, wow. it was all our fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so that's why actually doing work in Belfast to me is like that's why it's super important to do it physically in the space. And we talk about 
you know, we talk about punk and we talk, we've shown the films, we've had Terry as guests, you know, we've done lots of stuff like that because I think that sort of, all that stuff is really comes to bear, you know, in terms of like art or creativity and, you know, philosophy, I suppose, <laughs> helping people sort of, you know, plow their way through that maze of shite that the rest of the world seems to be falling into, you know. And if, like, if I, if I kind of like try to give a, you know, my critique of contemporary culture, <laughs> right, in a, in, a, in a nutshell, it's a, you have, I will call identitarianism and identity politics are the two dominant things, which are kind of like, you can call them right wing, alt right and left wing, but I think identitarianism is where the, the most extreme form of identitarianism is some individual group um, is, pretends to be the universal. So there's some universal like, hey, meritocracy. We live in a meritocracy, that's a universal thing. But the truth is certain people benefit from a meritocracy over others, right? So identity identitarianism is under the guise of, hey, we're all equal, there's some group that benefits over others. Some Ident are more equal than others. Some are more equal than others. So that's kind of like a universal that's actually um, advocates for w one positive identity group. Then uh, ident identity politics kind of sees this very well and it, it negates it. It says, hey, there's all these different identities. Um, there is no universal identity. Every universal hides white supremacy, European supremacy, masculine supremacy, right? Anything that pretends to be, you know, a universal, actually, whether it's universal rights, whether it's, um, uh, say, philosophy, whether it's mathematics, whatever, whatever it is, is, is really benefiting a certain group. And maybe even things like science, that's only one way of seeing the world. But when we universalize it and we say the scientific method is the only way of seeing the world, that is kind of a European supremacy. Um, and so that's kind of identity politics, basically is saying negates those universals. Um, the third position <laughs> is the universalizing of the negation, right? That's where I think things go, go wrong for the woke stuff, is actually, if the first is a positive universal and the second relativizes the universal and says there are no universals, there's just different identity groups competing, intersectionality, whatever. Then the psychoanalytic idea is, no, there is something that unifies us all, yeah. and it's the negative itself. It's the unknown itself, that we are all marked by an unknown, by an impossibility. We are all self-divided subjects. And, and so we are kind of, we're not unified by our identity, we're unified by the fact that we're all divided. And I think great art is art mm. that touches on that dimension of negativity. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, I just, say, I just totally agree. I, th I totally agree with that. I think it's worth saying. I, just, I think that's a really good summary of it. And I think that that is why psychoanalysis is important and politically useful. It's, you know, because, precisely because of this. The second one, the identity politics, is just as bad as the first. Yeah. You know, the, you know, we, without a, a, a striving for a universal subject, that, that we couldn't have, I mean, even a word like solidarity is probably too bourgeois, but you couldn't have uh, any kind of effective politics without universality. So the, yes. the getting rid of it is a disaster. And, uh, you know, but, but, any, but any positive universal generally tends yeah. to, so, but the, the universal of the negative is a way of yeah. creating solidarity around the divide, the divide of, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And if you, you take as the ground of being almost lack itself, understanding that the commodity can't fill lack, you know, this is a great basis to do some kind of politics yeah. that, yeah, maybe maybe will lead to something else. Yeah. Do you want to have a wee look at any questions? No. No. That's your job. I know, well, they haven't been. They're, yeah. they're talking to themselves. Okay, well, I'll say one thing. As, as <laughs> kind of like, <laughs> actually, I wonder why. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got a question. Oh yeah. Uh, in what sense are we using the word political? Oh Jesus. Oh okay. man. I can give it a definition. Okay. Okay, and it's the different. It's not. It's not like party political. It's politics as such. So, politics is the space where we are able to have a confrontation with the mismatched desires of the group with which we live related to the materials that we have together. When we think that politics is bashing people over the head with one way of seeing the world, we're precisely not doing politics because politics has to take into account. In order to, to have this idea of contestation and tarrying, we have to admit that everybody has different perspectives because we are all divided. We all have in common that we're divided, therefore we desire. But because of contingent experiences within reality, our desires are different. Okay, can I can I re, can I rephrase that? See if I'm hearing you right, because I think yeah. that's very very good. <laughs> Things are brilliant. Like, uh, are you let saying... me just let me just <laughs> yeah. rephrase it for you, lady. No, I think that's very very good. But I want to make sure I'm hearing you right, because are you saying like that? Because it, it actually fits with that. What's that famous saying that kind of you know politics begins? Uh, uh, what's it? Politics is war by other means, or something like that. I forget what it is. But yeah, it was the same as you know, war isn't conflict; it's the inability yes. to do conflict. So politics is the conflict yes. of desire. So what? Yeah. So what you're kind of saying is almost like scapegoating is not politics. Like what happens in a very primitive way is what we want to do is create oppositions. We want to create enemies that we can destroy, that we can blame for everything, that we can imagine if only we got rid of those Republicans, if only we got rid of those Democrats, right? Things would be better, and you said like kind of it says politics proper begins when we do not scapegoat, when we don't, when we don't reduce difference to opposition. Yeah. So when we, when we basically like, so yeah. so, the logic of difference to opposition or contradiction to opposition is the logic of the market, which as we've seen like the the capitalist logic can can disguise itself in any way but it's that dynamic so often what we say is like well the voice of the weakest must be made stronger so we can't do politics in the traditional sense because of that but that is always just then going to be weaponized by capitalism because it's following the logic of essentialism yes. and well, opposition like like in terms of northern Ireland, concrete example that yes yeah, so, so 1998 yeah. is politics that yes, was politics exactly. so like we were in a 30-year war that's not really politics Politics began when everyone sat down and said, we can't keep killing each other, we're going to destroy the place, we have got to go from war to conflict, we've got to go into, we've got to somehow tarry with... Politics is grace in a way. Yeah. And, you know, what we have in Northern Ireland at the moment, we're not doing politics because people can't stand to accept, you know, that there's a, there's a gridlock. Yes. Because the gridlock is to do with 
I'm right, this is wrong. And, and, and didn't the people vote, though? The people voted the people the Good Friday Agreement yeah. as well, so mm-hmm. the people yeah. were also involved. So is what you're saying that most politics that happens today isn't politics? Yeah. <laughs> I would say basically we live... Would we, say that, 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 because I, mean, I, I kind of agree with you, but he would say, actually, no, politics is all about opposition? No, no, I abs- it absolutely is, but it's the process of opposition. Well, it's the space in order for, for opposition to happen. He would almost say it's about creating an enemy and an outsider and an insider. No, but okay, this is also where I've heard this interpretation of Lacan, which I think I don't agree with, because I do think the analyst discourse leads to the possibility of doing politics. Yeah. Um, and people are like, oh, you can't do politics in the analyst discourse. Well, you can't do politics without going through the analyst discourse, I don't think. It's like, it's like you can't do... You can't do the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous without doing step zero, mm. which is grace as such, mm. which is openness. You, you don't, we don't know where we're going. We don't know that we're right. We, we are broken. We are all yeah. divided. And we have to create a space where it's almost like, the, you know, we, we talked about like the idea of play. You can't have play without rules. You can't have politics without the creation of a space where this yeah. can happen. I mean, I, I think the question of what is politics, it's a more sort of simple answer, I guess. But I, I think or I think really, really useful today is this idea of um, Jacques Rancière, the French theorist, which basically says that what's happened in politics today is that we've lost the ability to know where the important sites of contestation are. In other words, we've lost the ability to pick our battles, and therefore politics can't happen. Right, so, and that's true when we're told to pick between what you were saying, David, the contradictory stuff. You're told to pick between X and Y, you're told to pick between this and that. You, and actually, or you're told to care about identity politics rather than material conditions or something like that. You know, what, what, what politics is to me is when the contestation is actually happening at the right place. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, um, exactly. It's, you're, it's you're, not where, when it's been misdirected into all these absolutely. other things called politics. So, yeah, exactly. It's, that's why a lot of these, like, campaign stuff is apolitical because the pol- political step step zero hasn't happened so i mean where maybe the schmidt schmidt idea is you know onto something even though i don't think he's right is this idea of war isn't com- it war isn't conflict it's the inability to do conflict but c- conflict in the right space yes. you know it, it, of course like and that's kind of here yeah. here goes notion of politics from what i understand is mm-hmm. kind of like it is, it's, it's whenever we get to the level in modern society where contradiction is embraced at a, at a symbolic level. That's, yeah. When, yeah, exactly. that's when politics happens. Yeah. So how do, you, how do you reconcile the conflict with somebody who wants to use politics to just make themselves rich? Well then, yeah, then that's when it's not politics, then it's the illusion no, of politics. No, I know, but, that, but, but, but how, how, do you do, how do you find that? This is, the, this is the really difficult thing, right? And I think it is, I don't, it's, it's hard, like, what comes first, like a philosophical shift or a political mm. shift? Like, can we get to politics without having, like, almost a theological transformation in the way we understand subjectivity? Have we got so deep into capitalism that we almost need like a theological reading of our relationship to capitalism in order us, for us to like get to the first step of doing politics in the first place? Or, I mean, but at the same time, like the conditions are so, so shit that in order for us to be able to get to the point where we can do philosophical thinking, we need to have better material conditions. So we actually urgently need some kind of like political change now. But where is this going to come from? It's definitely not there in any of the, part, the party. Why, system, without so. giving too much away, but the reason why I hardly ever vote is because... Whoa. Most of the times, <laughs> most of the times, where I see, where I have the the ability to vote, I don't see politics. There's, but I have I voted occasionally whenever strategically yeah, I exactly. think there's a political moment. 
But there's also times whenever there's a possible boot, and to use the Shiva example, it's like pressing the closed door button. But here's, here's an example of politics happening outside of the space that we thought was political. Is in the UK, all of these, these strikes happening. So we have a really shit situation in our country. It's basically a poor country with some rich people in it now. And we have had a, a huge amount of strikes which are really supported by the general population but not supported by any political party or either of the major political parties, including the Labour Party, which was supposed to be the party of, you know, workers. Um, so politics has, ha has, has had to sort of go yeah, elsewhere. Exactly. So we, that, which means that our yeah. political system is really fucking shit at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Oh, we've, wow, we've got yeah, to be amazing. Right. Yeah. Happy Christmas, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, that's I mean, a lovely <laughs> reunion. <of ways. laughs> what you guys are going to be talking about. Do you understand why it's called Wake Night? <laughs> no, yeah. Sit around drinking, getting depressed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. depressed. Yeah. Everyone's like dying. Everyone's hopes and dreams of dying. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sorry, I'm going to... I've got the pigtail, pigtails on for a reason, actually. You mentioned Greta Thunberg, but sometimes we get onto these topics. I'm a little bit Greta Thunberg You're myself. Greta Thunberg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, does anybody want to say anything like more about politics? And then I'm going to draw back a little bit to the you know, recap. I've got a question for everybody else. I would like to know what people think that we, what we can do to do politics, or what we. You know where the philosophy comes first, where the community. How how do we how do we get back to doing politics? I just want to make sure I'm not going to get cancelled for sitting on this. Yeah. <laughs> I love everybody. <laughs> What's your position on the old mess? What's your position on the old mess? I'd be very popular. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. like Elon Musk. Yeah. yeah, I think. Let's not talk about Elon Musk. Um, what was um, your question, sir? I was just asking what people think about like, this. Capitalism is horrible. This. Yeah, but I mean, I think I, I, I really, I think it's a big question. I really don't know. I think unionism is a space, is a problematic space in some ways, but also can be useful. I think Pete's concept of a church that that starts to do these things is also an att attempt to find a space for politics when there are so few in politics, you know. So and also maybe through music. I don't know what Jay does. Art. You know, there's various ways well, well, places it can happen. And, you know, I, I kind of. I used to be an activist. Yeah. And I, and part of my self defining as an activist was not being a politician. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's just it going that doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. So it's it was you know, in my glory days this was direct action stuff and it was yeah. it was creative yeah. which I mean, it was grassroots and it was kind of and it was conversational. Yeah. But this is this is one amazing thing that I think has happened. We were talking about this the other day, it's like because of there's, there's all kinds of disasters because of social media, mm. but one thing is you know podcasts the para the para academic stuff has its issues in terms of precarity and people feeling the need to generate content and you know this kind of stuff and people not getting paid or whatever. But there is something about precisely maybe because people aren't getting paid that you can have these honest conversations and that's a start. Mm. Like I, this is politics. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I like for me. It was the way I make sense of it is. Um, I read a book once. It wasn't my favorite. Yeah. Uh, was, was that when you got your degree? Guy, yeah. <laughs> anyway, the guy was talking. He, he died shortly after he wrote the book, but he was talking about like revolution isn't 
capitalism isn't going to be fixed by revolution. Yeah. So what we need to do is find out ways to erode capitalism. And the phrase eroding capitalism has like been running around my head for mm. years now. So that, like, I try to shop. And uh, being a freelancer and a, a self-employed person really made me actually realize capitalism was fucked. Yeah. That was the point where I went, oh, this is really bad. So, you know, I try to shop in local shops. I try mm-hmm. to, like, I recently had an injury, which means I can't drive. I'm really not keen to start driving again. You know, I like, like, having to walk everywhere and get the bus. And but those are all, like, small incremental revolutions that I think are political acts. You know, my kids, like, literally, like, at the dinner table will be like, yes, daddy, it's capitalism. You know, it's that, <laughs> it's that sort of stuff, you know. So just, I think, seeing it for what it is mm-hmm. and trying to find where it has its tentacles, you know, and, and trying to kind of hit them with yeah. cigarette butts or something, you know, mm-hmm. like just do your little bit. Like, I agree with you a bit, also <laughs> not. Um, <laughs> because I, th- I agree with you about the eroding capitalism thing, and I think, you know, this is where like accelerationists go wrong, like people who think capitalism is going to destroy itself so you yeah, can just yeah. sit back. We do obviously need little things that we can do yeah. to start eroding capitalism. But I think the danger with the personal stuff is that you turn it all in on yourself and, mm. and actually, you know, so you direct your attention and energy towards like self care and self help, which are obviously dominant discourses or whatever. So you're, you're right, it's kind of like redirecting your. Uh, anarchist's energy inwards uh, self-improvement rather than outwards at the the capitalism which is oh I shared a bunch of stuff on Twitter too but like, you have to do oh, both yeah. <laughs> as long as you do both <laughs> <laughs> you this. Yeah. well I guess like so we're commonly but know, I mean if you look at someone like Dr. King who had the situation when he became very unpopular is when he realized that the underlying problem of racism in America was capitalism and so he started to take on capitalism with the Poor People's Campaign and what he was saying about the war. It was really amazing. I think people like him and Cornell West, I mean, these men who started off going like, well, we're gonna just do social justice issues with African, our fellow African-American brothers and sisters and then you know, we save the white people from racism and then going like, oh, but there's an underlying issue here that capitalism keeps playing. And I think these guys like this, I think often get ignored because of grandeur, you know, oh, they were legends, you know. But they saw this underlined issue that capitalism kept playing in it, and they realized that we're going to have to hit this area, we're going to have to hit capitalism, or these things are just going to continue to grow out of it. It's just going to be different symptoms. These were the symptoms earlier, and these are the symptoms. I've been fighting the symptoms, now we need to fight the disease, because the disease is capitalism. That's what's caused a lot of separation. I know that's very simple for you. I know that, yeah. I'm just, it's, it's funny because um, it's a very important discourse. We're talking about capitalism now, but I'm also very aware that that's very. No, 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 also as well, um, that, that it's, 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 it's difficult to talk about because it comes with a lot of. It's like, a, a lot of we were talking about, like, there's certain things in this world that, like, these objects that if you use, you can transform it. Like if you wear a, like a, a fluorescent vest or carry a whistle or wear sunglasses, it transforms you in some way. But like the word capitalism as well is one of these words that like does something. Yes, And exactly. almost, you know, you get this like McCarthyite yes. like backlash, if, you know, if you criticise it in some way. And also, you know, this is not to say, because in a way... Like I don't identify with most of the movements that call themselves anti-capitalist. Exactly, because they're often right. very capitalistic. <laughs> yeah. But also, you know, this is this is like an all just this like this idea that we all lack. It's like because capitalism in his like everything. It's like this is this is something that's not like 
you know, means that we're critiquing conservatives or critiquing yeah. liberals or whatever. This is, and it's not a personal issue. Yeah. Yes. No. Yeah. No. Uh, yes. Very good. I'm kind of going like. I don't think you need to add to that. Yeah. Okay. Don't add anything to that. Um, but then, okay. Then I'll do my Jerry Springer. Can I just uh, lots of good reviews for Helen on the chat here, and also Sawyer wanting <laughs> to know why everyone on the couch isn't running for office. That's a that's a rhetorical question. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Well, there. Okay. Well, to finish up, like everything we've been describing and talking about does actually connect then with this idea of the unknown or the negative and we've talked about the society of pure positivity where you know uh, we're always be our self entrepreneurs we have to galvanize and maximize um, we talked about um, you know the problems of fatigue and burnout and that we talked about politics as a as an orientation to the unknowing uh, paratheology is basically trying to create collectives in which we orient ourselves to the unknowing. And so I'll finish off with a couple of thoughts on it and then we're done. Which is, right from when we're children, one of the things we're most fascinated by is what the other desires. Uh, and what, how that manifests itself is often the obsession that the child has with the eyes of the other. And we are one of the only mammals, one of the only creatures that has like really white, what's, it, what's that part called? The iris, you've got the sea of white. The power but, of the eyes. But basically, um, we are animals who can really tell what people are looking at. And there's a point where infants become interested not in looking at the face of their parent, but looking at where their parent is looking, becoming really interested in what their eyes fall on, what interests the other person, and they start to become interested in what interests the other. And very early on we're interested in what does the other desire? What does the other want? And what does the other want from me? And this orientation to the unknowing dimension of the other is connected to what's called the death drive, which is we're fascinated by that unknown dimension of the other. And if religion is about orienting ourselves to the unknowing, then it's universal, you'll never get rid of it because there's something about being human that is in a very natural way, always interested in why is that person looking at me? What does that person want from me? How can I be what that person desires? Or how can I get away from that person's desire? Right, it's traumatic sometimes, it's desirous sometimes. Um, the thing called object A, object putia in psychoanalysis is basically something that happens in your life that tickles the earliest question of what does the other desire of me, right? it's a, it kind of draws out, uh, you almost experience that it's out a very bad way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like really at the height of like a, a short man's ball. I know, yeah. I know. Uh, tickling the balls of, yeah, tickling the balls of the dusting <laughs> is really object A. Because if dusting is the unknown desire of the other, then in your adult life, something that casts that up is it kind of draws us in. And um, the point is not to try to defend ourselves to that unknowing, but to somehow to love somebody is to open yourself up to the desire and the unknowing of the other. And something I've talked about a few times is often in dating sites women say about men, I hope they're not a weirdo. And men say about women, I hope they're not crazy. 
but obviously we want a little bit of weirdo and we want a little bit of crazy because the weirdo and the crazy are the names we give to the part of the other that's weird, that we can't grasp, that's, 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 that's ir that seems irrational. And if, if we don't have a little bit of weirdness and a little bit of craziness, um, we don't have a lot of interest, right? But we all are weirdos and crazies. And religion is an orientation to the weirdness and the craziness of the universe. There you go. Sure. All right, thanks very much for joining us. Um, and Did you guys talk about the next week? We did a little bit, okay. Which, which is, we don't know what we're doing. Probably okay. more of this. This year, no, no lie. That's what I call a twenty twenty four problem. Yes, All right. exactly. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us. Will I just click off? Is there anything yeah. to mean, do? Yeah. We all wave. Yeah. We all wave. Yeah. Everyone tickle the balls. <laughs> 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 All right. Thank you. Oh, yeah.